I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. In the first year of the pandemic, police reported hate crimes rose by 37%. That's from a recent Statistics Canada report that recorded 2,669 incidents in 2020, the highest number since such data became available in 2009. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. No one who has been paying attention to the rise in hateful rhetoric, threats, and the growing mobilization of white supremacists in Canada will be surprised by this data. But it's shocking and troubling nonetheless. Rooting out hate in Canada requires that we face it head on, going to its source and dealing with both the individuals and structures that produce violence and hate. So on this episode we ask, where do hate crimes come from and what is to be done? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate Recorder is Mohammed Hashim, to okay, Executive Director of the Canadian Race Relations 142. Foundation. Let's start with an assessment of, of where we are. So uh, StatsCan reported a 37% jump in police reported hate crimes during the first year of the pandemic, over 2,600 incidents. Can you walk me through what this rise in, in hate crimes you know, looks like? Who's being targeted? How is it being uh, manifest in, in, in communities across the country? So I think, I mean, starting from the beginning of the pandemic, obviously we saw a massive rise of um, anti-Asian racism. Mm -hmm. um, however, predominantly, you know, the most targeted uh, folks across this country are typically black and indigenous, but also the stat that you used around police reported hate crimes is one that is not a fair one, in my opinion, hmm. um, because police reported hate crimes are only that police reported. When you look at uh, Stats Canada's other reports in terms of general victimization, they were saying something like, you know, 230,000 uh, hate incidences have happened across Canada, out of which maybe 130,000 of them were of violent nature, out of which, uh, which 49,000 of them have been reported to the police. And yet, when we talk about police reported, actual police reported hate uh, incidences or crimes, um, that number goes to you know two three thousand like yeah, right. every year so the number itself is a skewed number because it's only what like police uh police receive and then secondly um what police receive may not always be uh tagged as hate related right so so there's huge gaps in the entire system in terms of you know, hate crimes reports and stats, but the general consensus around um, around hate crimes and hate incidences is that it's massively underreported. Um, who gets targeted um, is related to a number of factors, global factors, local factors, uh, who is in the news uh, more so. So there's a lot of contributing factors towards, you know, incidents of hate. So obviously, as soon as you saw COVID jump uh, up and it coming from Wuhan, you see Chinese Canadians and Asian Canadians becoming massive targets of of, of hate crimes. Uh, and similarly, you know, the like the Black and Indigenous communities have always been directly targeted by hate. So they so some of those numbers you see as uh, coming out, and some of the numbers you you barely see any of them. And, and some of the numbers that, to be frank, are reported by police are based, are, in my opinion, sometimes a reflection of the police's capacity yes, to, right. to, to take those numbers in versus not. So I'll give you a quick example. Halifax 
has uh, just created their new hate crimes unit this year. Um, I think there are well over 100 hate incidences for this year alone, while last year was 50. But now yeah. they have a hate crimes investigator. They have a hate crimes unit that's looking at it. So are, is it that the like the number like is that is it that the level of hate has doubled over the last year? I don't know if that's the case. Yeah. But but I know that like the incidences being reported are significantly higher because there's greater awareness around hate within the police service as well. Do you get a sense that there are communities, parts of the country that at some point say, well, we don't trust the police in this community. We don't, or there's no point in reporting it in the first place because what's going to come of it? Nothing's going to come of it. I mean, is there a sense that they've been let down uh, by those folks? Oh yeah. Right across the country. Uh, we hear that like many, many, many times. Actually, in fact, last week I was, um, uh, I was in, in Winnipeg and I'd say, and I was doing a bit of a tour, uh, to um, to different communities to find out, you know, whether they, so I would ask that question, you know, do you encourage your community members to report uh, hate crimes to the police? And I would say seven out of eight of them said, uh, we discourage people to do so. Actively discourage? Actively discourage people to do okay. so. Um, and that's because they felt that uh, they, wouldn't be believed right. that, you know, going to the police would re-traumatize uh, the victim uh, and a sense of, of care provided to them uh, or uh, the acquisition of justice was just so distant that, um, that it wasn't worth it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I, I also met with the, with the, with, so there's lots of structural issues uh, with both reporting, uh, capacity to report, capacity to review and ingest, uh, intake uh, hate crimes. But you know, I've I've met with the the subunit of the hate crimes in Winnipeg as well, and you know, there's lots of attempts to be able to do and improve the services there for sure. So I don't want to I don't want to undermine that at all. Uh, but I think overall. You know what the reflection, what that reflects, is not just in terms of how. I think that's how people, how that's how communities are feeling, in terms of who will believe us, and I don't think generally, uh, and when it comes down to hate, the police are, are one that people can feel uh, an honest sense of um, understanding from. What what does a better system look like? I mean, obviously, you know, they're like you say they're places where people think it doesn't matter, where in fact, not only does it not matter if you report, it might be worse than if you didn't. Uh, there's obviously lots of distrust of the police. We know that there's endemic uh, xenophobia, racism, uh, you know, bigotry in police services as there are in, in many institutions. Uh, what does a better system look like? Is it about saying, okay, well, we're going to continue to, to use police services, but we want to dedicate a unit that knows the community, that's trained in proper procedure. You know, is there a model that, that is, is better suited for this moment? So I currently co-chair a task force with the RCMP on creating national standards uh, for hate crimes investigations. So the answer to that question is a very, very long one. <laughs> you get all the time you want I'm... because because you know honestly I, I i don't want to say that here's the best model because i like i probably meet with the hate crimes units 
across this country uh, literally every single week. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I see, um, I see uh, good things. I see bad things. I see people who are really trying to do better, uh, people who are actually doing better. Um, and, you know, it's like I, 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 a big part of it, if I were to kind of draw the similarities across this country around who does it well, I think a lot of it, and this is, this is why the system is so difficult to, to standardize, is because it comes down to the people who are investigating. Right. The level of training of frontline officers to identify it and to flag it as hateful. Um, the ability of communities to trust the police to acquire justice. Um, so that relationship between different communities. Um, and all of that has negative pressure. Yeah. Uh, because obviously, you know, there's like much needs to be said about, much can be said around, you know, how uh, the trust gap exists between police and communities across Canada, particularly racialized communities, particularly the indigenous um, and black communities. Mm. So therefore, you know, there's spillover of that distrust in terms of how hate crimes themselves are a reported or um, uh, how the intake process is, if there's bias involved in that, um, and whether or not people will actually feel that going to the cops is an avenue that is actually going to do anything for them. Is, is cultural representation and presence in the police force, uh, religious presence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, uh, adequate? Is that even an avenue worth pursuing? I mean, do we want, you know, is it better to have folks from those communities in the police force who understand those communities? Is it, I, I would assume that, uh, as is often the case, there are people who just have no cultural, religious, historical connection to the spaces that they're existing in or, or investigating which is a sort of academic way of saying there's too many white people who don't know what they're doing. Uh, In the hate crimes environment, I would say the majority of police officers that are are involved in it are not white. Does that help? Is that huge? Yeah. Because they can, they can relate to people in a different way. They can, you know, sometimes they can even speak languages. They can, Mm. they have pre-existing relationships. Um, but there's also like, like, I mean, there's huge differences. So I'll give you an example. Some hate crimes units are standalone on their own. So they, like, they, so they just, they operate as an independent unit. Um, some of them are part of major crimes uh, units, which are, which is like the, the speed counter <laughs> of, <laughs> of like, you know, criminal investigations, like, you know, the volume that's coming in and that unit, like, typically across this country is astronomical. So like the, 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 the clearing rate um, or like the, just the ability to kind of move through files uh, with speed trumps care, in my opinion, sometimes. And, and I think hate crimes requires care. Um, and, um, and some of them are actually in, uh, in, in, um, some units are actually embedded within uh, diversity and outreach, uh, which give them an even deeper understanding. Um, obviously, you know, there's differences between 
how investigations need to be held and for their own independence. So therefore there have to be there has to be some walls created between you know different departments uh, for the investigators to have a clear sense of um, of, of neutrality. Uh, however, I honestly believe that, like, you know, having people from those communities investigate those things, uh, such things is a huge benefit because they're looking at it uh, more so. In my, not, no, I don't want to say more so. I, I wouldn't say that, you know, I wouldn't say more so, but I think that they, they bring their lived experiences to those, mm-hmm. to those jobs, and, and that's, that's a benefit. Now, where's the hate coming from? Uh, you know, I, I want to look at it both immediately and, and structurally, but obviously we're seeing a proliferation of hate and hate-related crimes, reported or not. We're seeing it online. We're seeing it offline. We know what it looks like in many cases. Um, where's it coming from? It's a, it's a big question because... There's not just one place that it's coming from. I think, I think we've been, you know, social media has created this environment where we're we're drinking from a fire hose on this stuff, um, and the spillover, um, because there's just so much volume of hateful content online that some people are getting deeply radicalized by it. Some people are getting angry about it. Some people are just, you know, ticked off. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe somebody who's ticked off uh, cuts off the person in front of them, uh, like on the highway, or somebody who's ticked off, you know, throws a punch and starts yelling, or somebody who's ticked off goes to a supermarket in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. There's different levels of all of that. Um, and I think that, you know, the the in my honest opinion, I think you have to stop the fire hose before you can start seeing where all what land has completely been gotten wet. Yeah, uh, to identify where to where to where where to to tackle it. Uh, obviously, we know white supremacist movements are are growing, are becoming more violent, are taking lives. Um, and 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 the mobility of those movements is what's really um, what's really interesting. I was getting a a briefing from the you know, ideologically motivated violent extremism unit of the RCMP around you know where things are moving, and they said something that was astonishing to me. They're like, you know, if you shut down one platform, it will literally take twenty minutes to recreate another platform. Of the same people, because if they if there's news to say, well, you know, Telegram is going to be shutting down uh, hateful groups, and all of a sudden the groups like, oh, there's there's 96 other other platforms, uh, which are currently I think there's 96 platforms in Canada for instant messaging and, and social media. Um, they'll just hop over to hop over to another one. It's whack a mole, and it's and and it's it's constant whack a mole. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but also, like, it, sometimes you can't even do whack-a-mole. I, I know Germany, uh, for example, ha- that has online hate regulation, um, does not have Telegram responding to them. Yeah, so, right. where, 
so where each, you know, like each social media company says, here's our representative to the, to the nation, um, to the country, here's who will be accountable to you. There's a representative that's assigned. Um, I, Telegram has refused to name that representative. So they're just like, yeah, deal with it. So, I mean, part of this then is, is I mean, this is a, a bit of a byway, so we don't have to go down it all the way, but part of it obviously is that we're dealing with companies that are often much more powerful than nation states, right? They don't need that country. They can dictate terms. They can ignore fines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, um, and what do you, then what do you do about that? I mean, what, what, do, what do you do if Germany says, well, we're, you know, if Telegram says, well, we're not going to send somebody to Germany or, or Facebook says, well, we're just going to operate in your country. Um, what, what's the recourse? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's, I think that's, that's definitely something that the federal government's looking at right now uh, with the online harms legislation that they're hoping to propose later on this fall. Um, but it's something that, um, uh, I mean, there's no perfect solution to this right now. Um, but we all know, and we're all sick and tired of there being, you know, sometimes to be frank, like knowing that there's no perfect solution towards it, looking to create a perfect system almost feels like it's just getting their way to further later, further later, and maybe not enough. Uh, and while the problem grows at a, at a rate that's significantly larger than the, the resistance legislation could potentially bring in. Are there platforms who take it seriously? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm extremely online. I'd like to say it's because of my job, but it's probably because of my personality. <laughs> and when I see wretched stuff, I mean, I don't go hunting for it because that's not how I'm spending my well, time. Well, David, I'm sure I, you're getting I, it in your inbox. Well, day. I do, but I mean, I, of course, I, you know, and, and this is as a sort of like white middle-class guy in Ottawa, right? So if anyone's ever getting a light touch compared to, to his colleagues, it's it's me. How much hate mail do you get? Out of curiosity. A, a, a lot. I mean, you know, every time I write something, I get some. If it's around vaccines or Doug Ford or Pierre Polyev or trucker convoys or drugs, it goes up, uh, especially around Polyev and Ford. And some of it gets nasty. During the convoy, it was docs threats and death threats. And it was like, well, what do you do? You know, I just, I remember having Julie Lalonde on here and she gets just volumes and volumes of volumes. And she's sure. like, they don't do it. Like what, nobody does anything, right? And, and it just makes me think, because when I see other people harassed on the internet, especially things that are hateful, I report it. But 99 out of 100 times, you get back a notice from Twitter, whoever it is, saying there's no violation. It's like, like what is a violation then? If this isn't a violation, if, you know, if nooses are talking about lynching isn't a violation, then what's a violation? Right. And, and it makes me think that, you know, it's obviously not being taken seriously by platforms. Um, yeah. and, and where do you go? And it's funny because I will say, like, you know, again, I, I recognize my positionality in this place. As, as, no, but know, I think you, you've hit the nail on the head there. Like the equation of what is permissible or not is a black box. Yeah. That, that nobody knows or has any accountability over. Yeah. That's what needs to change. That's what needs to change because at least if we knew collectively 
how those decisions are made um, and that there's accountability around those decisions, then the system can start creating precedents, creating negative pressure, creating positive pressure to say, okay, here, if you know you're going to cross this line, you're going to get banned. Mm -hmm. So then don't do it. You know, people will, people, so there's a lot of evil people out there that walk those lines Mm -hmm. really, really carefully. But if those lines keep moving backwards versus right now where those lines don't exist at all, um, then at least the, like the, the spread by which they can, that sees like their evil, like nastiness um, reduces because they have to be slightly better in more circumstances. Um, so I think that, I mean, like, I think that right now, whatever solution is going to come forward needs to be able to have precisely what you said there, uh, creating a set of accountability around what is and what isn't. Mm-hmm. And to be frank, I don't think it's going to be perfect. I think, you know, we need to uh, probably in my honest opinion, be uh, loose on this stuff uh, to begin with. Uh, because like, you know, what people are going to say, well, you know, this is an, like, this is an impediment to my freedom of speech, mm-hmm. um, which to be honest, if you're talking about nooses and death threats, yeah, like that's criminality. Let's take yeah, that off. Yeah. Like that's like that, that should be, that, that, sh- that, that should be taken off. And I think that at least let's start there um, to take off what we know is absolutely abhorrently wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as we start doing that more and more and more and more and doing it in a transparent way where people know that there are repercussions to doing stuff right now, then I think the system will, will then start getting better. Because right now there's zero recourse. Yeah. Zero recourse. Yeah. No accountability, no recourse. And I think we have such a facile understanding of speech in this country too. Is you know, whenever I get into these discussions, one of the first things I say is, "Look, I support freedom of speech. is important in a democracy, but speech isn't just words. Speech is an act. When you say something, you do something. And if the thing that you're doing is expressing an utterance that terrifies a person or a community or incites against them, then it's not speech anymore. It's violence." And words are weapons. And it, I get the sense that, uh, you know, the pushback is, well, I can just say whatever I want because of democracy. I'm like, well, if someone has to go and hide because of what you're saying, where are their democratic rights? If you've driven them away from spaces where they want to express themselves because your speech has become violent, um, how is that democratic? But it seems like there's all this hand-waving about any limitations would be inherently undemocratic, which to me is just so, so facile. I, I just... Uh, well, David, do you watch? Me. Do you watch like you know pornography on CBC at eight o'clock in the in the like or four o'clock in the afternoon? Are you uh, is that is that a thing that exists? Is it CanCon? I don't is know. Me- what I'm is saying is, I don't know. What I'm saying is that like there's limitations to what sure. people can say yeah, and and not do do and yeah. not do in the public sphere, yeah. and like to try to treat the internet as though it's this pure place. Of of uh, of utter um, you know lawlessness mm-hmm. um, is false because many of us are living our lives quite a bit online. Yeah, I, I I've stopped honestly. I just can't deal with the volume of 
well, just normal work information. <laughs> yeah, exactly. just day-to-day -day sensory input. It's, but like yeah. online, I just, I, I, I've just been so turned off of it for so long um, that I feel, I, I, I just, like, it doesn't feel like I'm having productive conversations anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious what role I want to get into uh, the sort of structural determinants of that, because I'm curious what role politicians and members of the media play in, in facilitating or excusing this rise of hate. And we don't have to get into specific people because we don't it's not necessarily about specific people, but although in some cases it is about specific people. But, um, you know, some of this is coming from the top down, no doubt. You know, people are putting messages out into these spaces that are encouraging people and giving them space to come and say and do vile things. I mean, you know, the U.S. and the sort of Trumpian uh, politics is a good example of that. But it happens here, too. I mean, to what extent do you think that journalists and, and folks in the media are, are complicit uh, in the rise of, of hate? Uh you know, I, I so journalists and politicians, this, we have to separate those two. Because um, I think, you know, some quote unquote journalists um, will use their platforms for horrible stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and some politicians will, will do that too. I think that, I think people have figured out, obviously, that what moves, likes, shares, content um, is high engagement. High, high engagement comes from emotional reaction, anger, um, you know, hope, pride, um, but a lot of anger. Um, and if you want, if you're looking to build an audience whether you're a journalist or whether you're a politician, the polarity of what you're saying, high, like, like if it's higher, will likely go further. Uh, even if it's people, you know, sending you horrible stuff because there's like, but even if you're like, you know, you're you're attracting negative attention, you're still attracting more attention. So therefore, that's kind of addictive, you know. <laughs> because like people Hugely. people feel and like in, in, yeah. in many cases, right? Totally. So I mean, is the business of that um profitable to people? Yes. Does it have dire consequences? Absolutely. Because I think, you know, like I I, I honestly feel that there's 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 just an ever-growing deficit of trust in democracy and democratic values uh, and human rights as a whole, uh, which are premised on democratic values. Um, and, and that's happening a lot of it uh, because of the polarity of politics mm -hmm. and, um, and how you know, politicians have weaponized fear in order to turn anger or attention against one versus the other. Um, you know, I would love, I would love a reality where, you know, race and identity uh, were just never debated politically mm -hmm. <laughs> by yeah. anybody, by anybody. You just take it off, like you just take it right off from everybody. Okay, like, you know, we see there's data clearly that's wrong, that's pointing towards 
um, you know, systemic results, outcomes that have been disproportionately worse for this group versus that group. Okay, well, let's figure out how to fix it for this group or that group. Like, you know, just like making it neutral <laughs> where we're trying mm-hmm. to fix things versus trying to paint the other as some something to fear or somebody evil. Mm-hmm. But like you said, I mean, the incentives in the political space, in the media space, in the marketplace are to do the opposite of that, right? They, you know, to sell out these groups and these uh, folks, their well-being, their communities uh, for engagement, for a buck to win, uh, especially in a world in which the goal for a lot of spaces isn't unity anymore. It's it's specifically to mobilize your side and division is the point, right? Like you sort of said earlier, and that works. Uh, you know, that seems so fundamentally embedded into our institutions now that it seems like it's hard to, to get that out. Well, I think like division is uh, to a certain degree on, so, I mean, there's a good friend of mine, he's a conservative and he's like, man, I wish we, you know, 10 years down the line, we could be working on political campaigns. I can't work on any political campaigns for the next three and a half years, nor do I plan to mm-hmm. after that, hopefully <laughs> ever. But like, you know, <laughs> back in the days when we, when, when we were, I, we would say like, you know, I, we wish we could just talk about economic policy. Yes. Uh, we could talk about social programs. Uh, he could talk about government like over expenditure, and sure. I could talk about and I could talk about his greed. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> and, good old days. And and we would and and we would not have our identity um, been either courted or distanced. Yes, uh, and used as uh, political fodder. Yeah, I would. I would. Lo- that's that's where I would love politics to go. Just calm down. Just calm down. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know it's funny because that you know, not ha ha funny. It was a choice to do this, right? I mean, it, you know, we had a politics. I mean, there's always been identitarian elements to our politics, obviously, and then certain groups have been marginalized for a very very long time, and sometimes that was hidden. It, it existed. It just wasn't um, as present as it is now and as obvious. So it's always existed, but it, there was a choice to to jump into identitarian toxicity uh, overdrive by political elites who are like, well, this will help us win. You know, the more that we can expressly demonize identities, the better we can do to get our people angry, as you mentioned earlier, and get them out to vote. Right? I mean, that was a that was a choice. You know, there's yeah. a, there's a I was like I I had an old mentor of mine named Ken Signorelli. He's an old trade unionist Italian guy from Sudbury, came in the 50s. Uh, he's part of the steel workers. And um, so he was like, a, he was a mentor to me when I started off in the labor movement. And this is back in the early 2000s or mid 2000s. And, you know, I was like, you know, this, like, there's a lot of, of stuff that's happening around Islamophobia right now. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, I remember that. I'm like, what do you mean I remember that? He's like, yeah, when we Italians came back then, we had a lot of discrimination. Um, and then, you know, when the Jamaicans came, they felt a lot of discrimination. And when this group came, they felt a lot of discrimination. Right. So, like, he was looking at it almost as waves of attack to different people over mm-hmm. different times. Um, and and I thought to myself, I'm like, oh, so it just never ends that the, the target gets changed. Right. And he's like, it's whatever 
uh, like, you know, whatever will sell at that time. Because uh, somebody's got, you got to create a boogeyman of some sort. Yeah. And usually it's people of color that, that, that become that boogeyman. What does the counter movement look like? You know, if we say, look, uh, we know that white supremacy underlies so much of this uh, hatred. Uh, we know that it's exploited by cynical people. Um, what does the counter movement look like? You know, I see a lot of hope uh, in places where um, there is a significant amount. I mean, I'll give you an example. There was last week I was in Winnipeg. And I met this young man who started doing coaching for young kids in his neighborhood. And, you know, he would take these kids to the soccer clubs. And like, you know, first they felt very, you know, ostracized and distant. So they said, okay, you know what, forget it. We'll create our own. We'll get our own space. We're going to create our own practices and we're going to do what we need to do for ourselves. And then they did. Um, And then, they started creating their own teams and then they started competing. And when they were, they, they were competing, they were, they were, they were whooping everybody else. <laughs> and then like some white parents would start calling them the N word. These are kids. They're calling the N word too, you know, in Winnipeg in 2022, you know, yeah. like, so like, so these, these like, like this group of, of folks came together and said, you know, we're going to do something about it. And then they pushed to create a charter for all of sports uh, or all sports organizations on anti-racism. They created training. They created like metrics in terms of diversity. They created coaching uh, incentives to diversify and they've done incredible amounts of work. So my honest answer to you is, like, you know, what does the counter movement look like? I think the counter movement is very local. Um, it's different approaches in a different, and uh, it's a thousand approaches in a thousand different places. Um, I think it's a sense of uh, people, uh, community groups being supported uh, through uh, their own incentives. I mean, their own initiatives, sorry. Um, and and to be honest, like once we start finding out one thing that works and you start duplicating it across this country. And, yeah. and I don't think that solving this is going to be, um, there's, there's, there's a silver bullet to any of it. I think that there's, there's many approaches that many different communities are doing. And I got lots of hope. Like I, I deal with, I, whenever I go on tour, I talk to people and it's, I feel insanely drained from having to hear the difficulties of, of their reality. But I also always leave with significant amounts of hope because I think that, you know, as a nation uh, here in Canada, though we have this angel complex of us not ever having yes. done anything bad yeah. or can be bad, yeah. I think that angel complex to be also, Frank, uh, creates a sense of expectation to say we shouldn't be doing bad either and i think that um once people identify and understand to a greater degree so there's lots of people who are calling out racism or who are talking about these things in in new and interesting ways that you know when like when the kids were discovered in kamloops 
we mm -hmm. immediately after that we did a poll with the assembly of first nations to say you know to understand how shocked you were or you know what was the emotional reaction of the country and it was massive like mm -hmm. levels of uh the depth of understanding of what had happened before that was minimal uh so the knowledge gap was huge that this thing all of a sudden it just put into really stark reality you know the genocide that canada had committed uh through the residential school program and just relations with the first nations in metis across this country mm -hmm. and um and that changed people's levels of expectations so there's big things that need to happen where you see discoveries and people react to that in a, in a real way um but then there's also lots of local things that need to happen uh, for people to just be like connected to their neighbors in a new and thoughtful way. In, in the last couple of minutes, I want to build that out. Uh, what does it look like to be an ally in that fight, uh, to be an ally in the resistance to, to hate for those of us who, who are outside of, of typically targeted communities? Because... Um, you know, it's one thing to say, well, look, I recognize my privilege, I recognize my positionality, I'm in a very different um, position than, than folks who are targeted. I am not targeted myself or not targeted like them. Okay, that's step one, good. But then what? How do you step up and, and actually contribute to, to being a part of the solution? You know, I, I get asked this question many times and I always uh, mildly sidestep it, to be frank, mm. uh, because like, I don't know, what your reality is. Sure. I don't know what, I don't know the space that you're working in, but I know that you, no matter who you are, has a choice to either do nothing, look away, um, or tackle it. And all I say is that like, you know, if in ways that you're seeing it, uh, actively addressing it, even with the greater 20% of where you were before. Yeah. Uh, yeah. is better than not doing anything at all yeah. and just letting it slide. And I think that letting it slide is um, of greater, but also I don't think anyone, I, you know, I speak to a lot of people about race. It's a yeah. thing that I do. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but, I've heard and I, that. And, I, and I've never, never met anybody who I've ever said like, wow, you really get everybody. Yeah, sure. <laughs> So I, I think that, you know, there's a sense of generosity we need to extend to the another person. But I also I think it's about motivation to do something about it as well. And I think that people need to know that when they motivate themselves to do it, others around them um, feel safer because of such. And even if they don't hear about it uh, directly from someone and say, yeah, that really helped, um, you know, them doing that. Um, people stepping up and intervening or like taking an initiative or moving a conversation forward or, you know, extending the table or, you know, pulling up another chair or intentionally making sure that we have a voice that's not being heard included into the conversation. Mm -hmm. There's a thousand ways one could do it, but they're just making sure that your intentions uh, are meeting deeds and not just thoughts and prayers. Yeah. I, you know, I was, when you were speaking, just giving that answer, I was thinking about how, uh, you know, not only do we as people not know things, we don't know what we don't know, <laughs> right? And that's the curse is that, you know, it's one thing to say, well, I don't know. Like, okay, of course, you don't know. There are things you don't know. But there are things you don't know that you don't know. 
And uh, one of the things I've, I've noticed that, that I've been trying to work on it's for a very long time is, is being receptive to people saying to you, uh, here's why you've not done well here. Here's where you could do better. And um, I, which is sometimes hard to do because we don't like being told we're not great, right? <laughs> we don't like being told, oh, hey, you missed this thing. I'm told you all the time that I'm not moment. doing great. So yeah, <laughs> I'm used to it. So you're used to okay. So you've developed that muscle, <laughs> but uh, you know, I someone sent me a, a message recently, uh, you know, about the SpongeBob meme and the uh, the alternating caps, uh, all caps, small text, to try to mock someone, and they're like, "Here's why that's ableist," and it had never crossed my mind that that would be ableist because I just didn't know what I didn't know. But then that person said to me, here's, here's why, and here's some literature on it, privately in a, in a message. They didn't come at me publicly. And I said, uh, you know what, you're right. I, I didn't know that, I wouldn't have thought of that. But now I know, and I'm gonna stop. And I wonder to what degree, uh, for so many of us, a huge part of that work is just being receptive to critique, listening to it, responding to it, and then doing better going forward because it can be hard to receive that stuff that the, those notes because um, your immediate action is, is to get your back up like yeah you know who are you to tell me what to do it's like oh yeah you're a person in my community who wants better for themselves and others that's who you are <laughs> right yeah i mean i also think that i mean i screw this up all the time too <laughs> so <laughs> But then you I, learn I, and get better, right? Like I mean, I try my best, honestly. My like, I really do try my best. I try to go above and beyond, but um, but, but you do, and you do though, right? I mean, we see it. Uh, I think a lot of people see it. Well, I think that um, you know, like, like you know, you you, you gotta you gotta take every like you know, if somebody's you know privately messaging you and saying, um, "Hey, homie." Come yeah. correct. Yeah. Uh, not sure if you saw this, or even if you saw this, come correct, please. Yeah. <laughs> and then oh, yeah. that's 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 clean. That's doing you a solid. Hugely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, like telling I mean, someone they've got spinach in their teeth, except for being an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> I want to know when I'm an asshole because I want to do better. You know. And, and again, sometimes you you don't know, and and it takes that person to to say to you. You know, and obviously, in an ideal world, you're doing that work for yourself and you're figuring it out. But again, it's just sometimes you just don't know what you don't know and someone, you know, steps up and does it, which is why, for instance, the work that, that you and your organization do is so important because it puts stuff on the radar that otherwise we might not know. And as soon as you know, then then it's incumbent on you to, I mean, the, the public I'm talking now. Uh, you know, I actually, I mean, the, the, I also see that like, you know, this country is about to change significantly as well. There's lots of stuff that's coming down the pipeline uh, as a country that I think will have massive implications. Um, you know, just even from a public policy lens, you know, BC has a new anti-racist data act. They're doing an anti, likely doing an anti-racist act as well as a police modernization uh, reform act out in BC. Federally, there's employment equity uh, act revisions that are coming forward, online harms, uh, combating hate, national action plan, online harms. Uh, Nova Scotia's done 
I'm kind of skipping the middle, but Nova Scotia has done a full anti-racist act. Uh, but I can sit here and name every single province doing something uh, going forward that is helpful to this country in terms of race. So from a public policy position, I feel that, you know, we're not, we're never doing enough, but we're going in the right direction. What I find from a community perspective is that the impact of such is just not being felt. Mm-hmm. So people are saying, well, these are nice words and legislations that uh, you're doing, but it's hard to have hope in that because my live reality is still one that it's difficult to, to bear. And um, I think that, you know, that that's a difficult, that's the difficult place that I have to live in, in terms of, you know, hearing that reality and pushing for those changes. But overall, I feel uh, optimistic in terms of how we're moving forward and uh, because if I don't have hope in this thing then really what am I actually doing it for <laughs> yeah well that you know what that brings us a time uh, which is uh, I think a great point on which to to close uh, the hopeful call is always a good note on which to end even even in tough times so uh, thank you for doing this I really appreciate it thanks for joining me today thank you for having me And as always, uh, my thanks to the team who make the podcast not just possible, but far better than it would be without them. Uh, Carolyn Smith, uh, Aisha Jera, and um, uh, Ross Clark, who who edits all of this and makes me sound far more coherent than I am otherwise. So thanks to everyone. And thanks to the listeners who make the podcast possible. We will see you back here in two weeks.